On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about whether or not people in this province want corporations and unions to be able to contribute to political parties. There's a new survey that was done, wide-ranging survey, with very clear answers about where people stand on this one, about whether they want corporations and unions not only giving money, but then theoretically having a say and being able to control if that's the right word, the governments. We'll talk about that one. We're also going to be chatting about what is going to happen with the two Michaels in China. The first of the trials begins on Friday. Hmm, not a good time. This this sounds like it is going to go very, very, very badly. We'll discuss that though. And the strangest place in all of Hamilton. Where might it be? We are going to tell you. And you can visit it if you want after listening to our conversation. We'll tell you all about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The Toronto Star commissioned a wide-ranging survey on a whole bunch of topics politically related that came out the other day. Uh, There's lots of stuff in there about vaccines and about lockdowns and politicians' performance, and we may get to some of that stuff in a second. But one thing in particular I found very fascinating really jumped out and captured my attention. The question was, do you agree or disagree with eliminating corporations and unions from being able to contribute to political parties? In other words, do you like the idea of allowing unions and corporations to still give money to parties and have a say in politics? Or do you prefer to have those corporations and unions, they can still talk about it, they can still march and they can vote and do all things, but they can't have that kind of financial say. Well, what do you think the numbers showed? Any guess? I'll tell you what the numbers showed. Strong support against allowing unions and corporations to be financially involved. Close to Closing in on three quarters of people were in favor of saying, no, get out of it. No more union donations to political parties. No more corporate donations to political parties. Is that a good idea or is that a bad idea if that was to be implemented? Stephen LeDrew is a political commentator. He is host of the excellent three-minute interview that you can find on YouTube. He's also the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He joins us now. Stephen, how are you tonight? Scott, very nice to be with you as always. Uh, Always love having you. Um, When I hear about this, uh, you know, I try to... I try to have a position on these things and try to think through, okay, I got to decide one way or another. I'm kind of split on this. Like there's parts of this that I see is really, that makes a lot of sense. And there's part of this that I say, you know, that seems kind of not right. Is this a good idea or a bad idea to say uh, corporations and unions, keep your money out of politics altogether? To directly answer the wording of your question, no, it's not a good idea to Take that one step further, as I know you're going to do in a minute with me anyway, to say that there should be strict limits on it, I think uh, that it is a good idea. And uh, we saw at the federal level years ago where um, Kretchen's government tried to, and well, they did. They said, well, corporations can't donate. And when you say that, Scott, most people say, oh, yeah, we're talking about Bell Canada and GM and Ford and big corporations. We have to understand that virtually every corner store, Every Kim's Convenience and Mom Pa Corner Store and Little Business is a corporation. And for corporations to, for small corporations to operate effectively, they need to get the political donation. And, they, and people should be able to put their money where their mouth is. They should be able to donate to a political party. And so to, a ban, to ban corporations is just silly. To limit the number to either $1,000 
or $1,500 makes an awful lot of sense. Same thing for unions, although what happens in jurisdictions where unions are banned, unions just say, okay, well, we'll give you the money, you union member, and you donate it personally. So you have to be vigilant about it, and I just think that there's no way in a democracy for anybody to give more than an agreed-upon figure. I don't care whether you're a person or a corporation or a union or or a special interest group, which we have seen. Sure. And Scott, they play big roles in Ontario governments, in Ontario elections, and most people don't even know who the heck they are. All of a sudden, these ads come on, concerned well, citizens for Scott Radley. Yeah, and that's, Stephen, that really becomes the, tr- the challenging issue with something like this. It's great to say, okay, corporations or sp- special interests or unions can't donate. But what is a donation? I mean, if they do a TV ad, is that a donation? If they slap a a poster onto the side of a car, is that a donation? Is that an in-kind? Like, how do you sort out what counts as a donation? Well, exactly. Or a contribution? Any money expended, whether it's it's financial money or whether, like, like direct money, sorry, or whether it's an ad paid for by somebody else, or whether it's a company that sends its employees over to Scott Radley for Premier, and say, work for this guy for three months, for free. That's a huge donation. So there has to be strict accounting as to... But it gets so complicated. If you're going to put in rules like this, and look, again, I think there are, in certain places, I think there makes some sense, but the, it gets so incredibly complicated. So now, Stephen LeDrew Enterprises has a vested interest in getting someone elected, so you allow your employees two hours in the afternoon to go off and go to a rally, how do you? How does anybody honestly keep track of that? Because that's a contribution, and that oh, would be absolutely. a financial and, thing. And it becomes impossible to monitor. Well, it's that's why we have computers, and that's why we have uh, you know tax returns and everything else. And you're right. Thirty years ago, it would have been impossible. But uh, there was a case in Quebec where after the where after the Chrétien, uh, um Sorry, I just had to have a little fight here with my um, puppy who was doing something on my shoe. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but but the, a company was fined for giving its directors money to give to political parties to s- circumvent the intent of the law. But the law was written well, and they got nailed. And what we are seeing is uh, so often, especially out of the provincial government, something came up with the provincial government about three weeks ago. I actually sent a message to the government. I said, do you not have anybody there anymore that can draft regulations so that they are encompassing and mean what you say? Uh, it, was, it was like something out of grade five. But a, per, a good draft person uh, can draft laws that are encompassing, that will have impact. And so it's not impossible. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One thing that I'm frankly surprised this hasn't happened already. There is, in my mind, the one issue, you can argue about the corporations, you can argue about the private sector unions. To me, there is a problem with public sector unions being involved in donations because you have political parties who make promises to public sector unions who are the people they have to negotiate contracts with who then help them get in by spending a lot of money. And then once the party wins and gets in, then you have to thank them and pay them back for their support. So you then use taxpayers' dollars to reward them for their support. That, to me, is definitely wrong. That's not even close to being possible. I don't know why that hasn't been banned already. Well, we saw great examples of that during the McGinty and the Wynn governments when uh, they were dealing with the teachers' unions. And um, you know the head of the teachers' unions are uh, are very very you know 
Very effective and very tough characters. I think people in Ontario still have a high regard for teachers per se. For the heads of the unions, they are lower than probably most politicians. And you're, it, you just described that vicious circle with teachers and OPSU and others where they are donating to their party of choice. Their party of choice gets in, and their party of choice then has to use more taxpayers' dollars to pay them higher wages. And uh, it's insidious. So I think that, I think that star poll... Um, reflects something, Scott, that is that is common sense and that just shows the goodness of most people of of uh, Ontario is that they don't want to have insider deals. They don't want to have the big shots buying um, certain you know regulations to free uh, uh, well what's going on in Ontario right now lands that are should be conserved under conservation areas to be you know freed up and developed. Uh, developers are always in there. Paying big money. I mean, this week, the uh, premier had scheduled, as you know, Scott, a big fundraiser. I think it was sixteen hundred dollars a head, and oh, oh, gosh, gosh, well, it's been canceled at the last minute because mm. somebody found out about it. I gave some press. I think we need some. I need. We need uh, some openness. We need some honesty. But that that applies to everybody. Don't just pick on the corporations. Don't just pick on the unions. Don't just pick on special interest groups. It should be across the board. There should be no one who has a, uh, a, a bigger contribution to be made than the next person. Whether it's right. We, don't, we want to get rid of the papal indulgences. You know, yeah. that we, don't, we can't buy our way into heaven anymore. I mean, that's, you know. And that's, I th- and I, Scott, can't we? Well, <laughs> I, I'm told no. Um, but here's the, you know, here, Stephen, here's where the. I've that for years. Here's the trick, though, because this same survey. So I, look, and I, I think you're bang on. I think people look at this and say, "We don't want, as you say, we don't want the big shots having more sway. We don't want them yes. pulling the pup, being the puppet masters of governments, whether it's unions or corporations." But the same survey shows people are general, not to the same degree, but generally not in favor of allowing the contribution level for individuals to go up more. And so now if you're a political party and the, and the people are saying, well, we don't want the big shots and the corporations and unions having more, but we also don't want people to be able to give more. How do political parties then make their money? It's, it's got to be one or the other, doesn't it? Well, I'm not certain of that, Scott. I used to be spent a lot of time fundraising uh, across Canada. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that a corporation should be limited to the same amount as an individual, as the same amount as to a union or anybody else. Let's just have... You know, you, one person, one say, or one, one contribution, or one... One person, one vote, basically. Yeah. Same thing, same idea. Same idea. You're absolutely right. So why would somebody be able to give $100,000 and an individual be able to give $1,000? Because in this rich society, there are a lot of people that could give $100,000, and uh, they used to. And I just think that is wrong, because you know darn well, Scott, and your listeners know all darn well, that... When it comes down to making a decision, and there's, uh, you know, Stephen LeDrew gave a thousand bucks, and you know the big shot gave a hundred thousand dollars. Well, you know what? <laughs> Let's just go with a hundred. We owe him. What, what if we? What if we just double? I mean, I think it's about sixteen hundred dollars now. That is the personal limit. I think it's in that ballpark. I could be wrong, but the, the, one of the questions was, what if we were just to double that? So it's not a hundred grand, but it's still. More and again, that one a lot of negativity towards. They just it's it's as if people they just don't want money going to political parties. Almost is almost what it sounds like. 
Well, yes, and I think that, that, that that's a mistake. I think that political parties are important to our democracy. I think that they should be able to raise sufficient money to uh, fund themselves. I think it's crazy. Dumb as a bang of hammers when the governments are paying political parties. Um, that way you have uh, people in Ontario funding the Bloc Québécois in Quebec, for instance, on a federal right. level. Right, because we pay, our, our, our system pays per vote a certain amount, and it's, it's like a couple bucks or something per vote. Uh, yeah, so you end up paying... To, to, to pay separatists. Yeah, that, that, that becomes, I think, a lot, that becomes problematic for people, and I don't know that everyone knows that, uh, and that's not, you know, patronizing or criticizing, it's just it's one of those things that we don't really pay a lot of attention to, that we are paying tax dollars to support parties that may be doing stuff we don't agree with. Well, anyway, exactly. it's... Not only separatism, but all kinds of other issues that people would say, well, geez, I don't support that. I don't want my money supporting that, which exactly. is why there still has to be, instead of government run, there has to be government controlled fundraising, and political parties should be able to raise money. And if, you are, if you've got a head of steam and you're in the opposition and there's been a government in power for a few years and you're raring to take it over and to reverse things, then you should be able to benefit from that by raising more money. It's, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about this, I think, a lot because A, it's on the table now and B, you know, there are elections that are not that far down the road and um, we'll, we'll Scott, see if this thing becomes a real issue. Scott, tell me there's not going to be a federal election soon. Well, uh, I don't know if you can hear that. I'm touching the wood on my desk, but um, I may as well just be touching the wood on my head because I'm not really sure which one it's going to be, but we'll, uh, we will see. And, and when they call that one, Stephen... Not to be negative, but you'll be back on here. Uh, Stephen LeDrew, former president of the Liberal Party of Canada, political commentator, host of the three-minute interview. Go look that up on YouTube. They're great. Stephen, thanks as always for doing this. Always a pleasure. Great show. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It has been now, uh, unbelievably, more than 800 days that Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor have been in a Chinese prison in custody in China. Beginning tomorrow... They will be going on trial for spying, for espionage, one tomorrow, one on Monday. And perhaps uh, I'm stating the patently obvious, and it's almost too stupid to say it this way, but uh, things don't look good. Things don't look good. It's just has, it's looked bad from the beginning, and now that we're down to a trial and you know we're talking about one one day and one the next, that doesn't sound like a long time for a trial. Um, what's going to happen? Margaret McQuaig-Johnson is a senior fellow in the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa. She's on the Canada-China Forum Advisory Board. She's an expert on things going on in China. She joins us now. Thank you for the time today. Very much appreciate it. Good to be with you. Uh, yesterday on our show, and you weren't listening, but that's okay, we were, we were chatting with uh, a lawyer about whether the former police officer charged with killing George Floyd, where jury selection is going on, whether he, under the circumstances, could possibly get a fair trial. And I guess we've got a theme going, because it's going to be the same question today, different circumstances. Uh, but I kind of fear that we already know the answer on this one, whether or not the two Michaels have any chance of getting a fair trial. Well, we do, and... Um, they won't, and they'll be found guilty, as are 99.96% of cases wow. that go to court in China. And in this case, in cases like this where there's a, a pressure on another country, it's obviously politically motivated, and therefore 
um, it's probably 100% in cases like this. Well, I was going to ask you, 99.6, who are the 0.4? <laughs> who are the lucky yeah. ones? <laughs> you know, they, they, they um, uh, perhaps stole something from a neighbor, but actually the wife had, had said they could borrow it. That kind ah. of <laughs> it's not yeah. for cases like this. But in this case, it's not just that, uh, certainly it is a very much a political thing and an inter-country thing and all these other factors going on. But over in China, this story is not hidden. It, it has been made known about the two Michaels. So the government of China is has made it clear publicly what they accuse the Michaels of doing, correct? That's right. And they've, they've said infringing national security, and but they haven't given any evidence. They haven't been specific about exactly what they did. And so even Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor probably are going into their trials not knowing what they're going to be hit with. They get a brief meeting with their lawyer in advance. In the courtroom, they're not able to talk to their lawyer. That's not permitted. Oh. They can't take notes into the courtroom. Um, and so anything that they plan to say in their own defense, and they probably will get a chance to speak, uh, will be um, uh, something that they will have had to plan out ahead and memorize to make sure that they remember every aspect that they want to, to mention. Uh, this is hugely stressful, as, as I'm yeah. sure you would, can imagine. Yes. And, uh, and they don't have the support of their families there. In fact, there are no, going to be no foreigners there. There will be no media. And what the embassy is being told is that that's because it's national security. This broad brush uh, claim that China is making. Therefore, they're keeping everything uh, secret. Um, and, you know, in our in our system, uh, uh, tr trials like the one you mentioned, there's a lot of transparency and people see video and and there's a lot of transparency. Um, it, Canadian judges spent years training Chinese judges through uh, a government program under our uh, Canadian International Development Agency. And it just doesn't seem reflected now in their judicial system. There's no rule of law as we know it. And when we talk about rule of law, it's not, does the country have lots of laws? Uh, rather, it's uh, every person is uh, allowed due process to see a lawyer, to contact family. Um, and, you know, uh, in cases of foreigners uh, that go awry in our country, their embassies can meet with them on a regular basis, much more regular than the Michaels have had. And so uh, this is the system that they're now in, and it's, yeah. it must be terrifying for them. Well, and, and as I said a moment ago, and as you answered, I mean, the fact that China has made this case known to its people, that it's not been kept secret, I just can't imagine that even that point four, that hope, perhaps, that they're going to allow themselves to lose face by not winning this case. I mean, it, it, it seems such a foregone conclusion. That's right. And, and losing face is exactly right. That's very important in the Chinese system. And so at some point, they would have to go to trial. And in that sense, uh, there may be some small light at the end of the tunnel in the sense that once the trial is over, uh, it's not likely that they will get their uh, sentencing right away. 
uh, it'll be months or maybe even years before they're sentenced. But what that means is that uh, when the Communist Party, which basically tells the judges what to say in their sentencing, um, when they decide that the time is right to give them back, they could be sentenced to, say, five years or 10 years or life in prison, plus de- deportation. And the deportation can happen right away. That's what happened with Kevin Garrett, who was um, detained in 2014, spent two years in detention and then jail. And when he finally went to, to trial, it was less than a day that is, and he too was charged with stealing state secrets and espionage. Uh, and his case was uh, in retaliation for a Chinese national in British Columbia uh, on, who, who was being charged in the U.S. with steal, stealing military secrets. And Kevin um, was, uh, was, was given ultimately five years plus three years, so eight years total. He'd already done two plus deportation. And this, this, the verdict came a, a month and a half after his trial, hmm. just after the prime minister went on his first big su- successful trip to China. And he spoke up for Michael, uh, for Kevin, Kevin Garrett. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You sort of mentioned that this is going to be very, there's no media, there's no other. So we're not going to get to see them. And the reason I ask that is not because I just want to see them. We know what they look like, but we have heard so many stories and rumors about how they've been treated or mistreated and seeing them might give us some evidence or idea of whether those are true. We won't see any sign of them, will we? No, and in fact, we have our embassy hasn't physically seen them since January of last year. Um, there, there was a, a hiatus of seven months when um, when the, they had no visits whatsoever. Uh, usually, they're allowed half an hour per month from the embassy, and they had no visits. And then, when the visits started up again, they were virtual visits, where the ambassador and consular officer had to go to the prison and sit in a room on a screen, and the um, Michael was in the other room on a screen. And uh, so that's not really seeing them physically, but it was better than nothing. Uh, that continued until, for Michael Kovrig, um, January 21st, and Michael Spavor, February 3rd, uh, and they haven't seen anybody since then. So they've missed their regular visit, and they wouldn't know why. The, the embassy doesn't know why. And and so they're really at sea, and you, you have to feel sorry for them and, and also particularly for their families. Um, having said that, there is um, uh, the meeting that Secretary of State Blinken is having uh, today with uh, his counterpart from China, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and I expect this will be raised, and I expect also that um, Blinken will be infuriated by the fact that the trial is starting uh, essentially the day after this big meeting in Alaska. Um, Blinken was very outspoken a couple of weeks ago when Ca- Canada's uh, declaration on arbitrary detention was <coughs> launched. And <coughs> excuse me. And uh, with 58 countries plus the EU signing on, 
And he, Blinken made very, a very strong intervention and statement about uh, behavior such as this is not consistent with international norms. It's not what what is expected of countries today. Very strong statement. So the, he is very much aware of the, the, these cases. So is uh, President Biden. And so this will be something that I'm sure they'll discuss at their meeting in Alaska. And it will be interesting to get their, their debrief on how that went. Um, and uh, But in, in addition... They've also said that they're not going to intervene with the Department of Justice process. So you know, we're still waiting to see what happens with Madame Mung, and that's where we started with this. Uh, a few weeks back, it was the Canadian Parliament that voted to declare the Chinese government's actions with the Uyghur people a genocide. Is it Was this trial already arranged or already lined up for now, or was there a connection that it got moved up and, and that prompted or created the urgency to have the trial now while that was still fresh? I, I don't think it's related to the Uyghur genocide. Um, in that case, Canada couldn't uh, ignore what's going on in China. It wouldn't be consistent with our values. So I think Parliament was exactly right, and it's great that it was uh, in unison, uh, saying that this is genocide. No, I think what is, I think it's directly connected to the timing of this uh, China-U.S. meeting, uh, and China often does this in negotiations. They do something as a surprise just before the negotiations start to put their opponent, the other side of the table, on their back foot and put them, you know, off off guard and and so on. Uh, so it j- just to to demonstrate that they have the upper hand and they have control. Uh, so it's it's posturing like that with the Americans, and it's also uh, <clears throat> posturing for Chinese citizens um, who, as you say, have been told repeatedly that these Canadians have endangered China's national security. It is uh, it is a mess, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that too many people have too much optimism that there's going to be a good result, and we'll we will probably be by this time tomorrow night talking about what the result is. And, um, you know, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, but I, I think I'd be laying some money on guilty because that is uh, almost seems like a foregone conclusion. Margaret McQuaig-Johnson from University of Ottawa, thank you so much for the time today. Very much appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you know, again, and, and I don't, in no way do I make light of this by, you know, that comment, but I mean, it just, it, it would be, fall out of your chair stunningly shocking to the point of staggering if they were found not guilty there's just almost no chance this whole thing just seems like a a drama for the sake of having a drama which is terrible you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml there is a place in dundas a little shop in Dundas that I believe to be the strangest place in the city. In fact, I'm positive it's the strangest place in the city. It may be the strangest place in all of Canada if you go and visit. It is a little store that offers a shopping experience unlike anything that you have uh, had before. Way different from what you've probably had before. Um, For example, uh, you need a human skeleton? This is your place. Uh, need a century old coffin. Yep. Got that. Need a headhunter's basket decorated with real monkey's heads. Yep. That's there. 
and, and those aren't even necessarily the weirdest things that are there. This is, um, this is that place. It is called the cabinet of curiosities and otherwise needful things. The man who is the co-owner of that store is Mark Drack, who joins me now. Mark, how are you tonight? Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me tonight. No, thanks for having me. Uh, do pe- Listen, do people in Dundas know about your store? Because I would think that if they knew that this kind of stuff was available and for sale and available to like look and shop and everything else, you'd be crawling with people all the time. Well, the funny thing is, this has kind of been an ongoing thing for years with us. And it's almost like the mystique that's inside the shop is also the mystique that carries outside the shop. We're, we're almost like an unsung kind of hero in the oddities market and that, that we're almost uh, invisible. It's, it's funny. We've had to deal with this for five, six, seven years. Uh, it's, it's just a, a, a weird kind of state in Dundas. We're on Hat Street, so we're not on King Street. Um, but when they do come in, the, the feedback and the expression speak for themselves. I, I'm not sure that King Street would be able to handle your store in Dundas. King Street. I think, <laughs> I think it might be a little overwhelming for King Street as well. Yeah. But you know what? That's Is it, what we need, right? That's the whole point of the store. That's what we need. We need, we need to get to kind of fall back into a position where we can embrace the unusual or we can embrace things unknown to us where we, uh, we can we can look for the unique and see um, weird as good. Um, that's kind of been a mission in mind, whether it's a philosophy uh, in my life, whether it's a philosophy or a, or a statement. I don't know, but it's like everything seems to be edging further and further into the realm of conformity. And we know mm. what stores are in what town before we get there. We know what's in what aisle in a store before we start looking. Um, it's harder and harder to find those unique stores that are that are out there that that dedicate themselves. I mean, this is a true dedication. My partner and I, I you know, we joke around. We can't remember the last time we took a paycheck. We take it and we put it back into the shop. Today, picked up uh, a series of. Uh, now, this is on the morbid side, but we picked up today a series of um, Cuban execution uh, photographs from 1896. On the lighter side, we picked up a beautiful hand-carved coconut from a sailor that would have sailed the South Seas in around 1880s, 1870s. So, Well, I mean, look, you, you a few moments ago used the word weird, uh, whether you want to call it weird or strange. Is it insulting if people say it's weird or it's strange? No, not at all, because it's just an easy cut to the chase. I would rather be weird than be normal. You know, on, on what, any what word do you level. use, Mark? Well, if you're talking to someone, what, how would you describe your store to someone who'd never seen it or never heard about it before? The the, the trade is is growing um, growing actually fast because there is there is quite a following uh, around the world actually, and that is curiosities and oddities. Um, the unfortunate thing for those that really and I don't want to sound like an elitist, but for those that really buy into it, that really commit ourselves. It's, it's a little tricky to watch it become a catchphrase. So you'll see a lot of stores out that, that say they sell oddities or say they sell curiosities. It's a real niche market, and it takes a lot of commitment and dedication to get there. So oddities and curiosities would be number one. I mean, weird kind of falls into the category. And I remember for years I had the nickname. Uh, I was set up permanently at Aberfoyle Market, and I was, I was the creepy guy, which I was fine with. <laughs> Again, well, who is, these people knew who I was, right? Who you, you say it's a niche market or niche market? Who is your clientele? I mean, look, I, I was in there the other day, 
And I mean, it is, there is stuff there that you don't see anywhere else. And that would freak some people out because it's just way out there. Who, who is the person who is going to come in and buy some of this stuff? Well, I'll, I'll say this in all sincerity. That's one of the beauties of this entire uh, trade. If you want to say it, if you want to call it a community, however you want to put it, uh, it's all walks of life. It's all demographics. It's all ages. It's all sociographics. So it's all walks of life. Uh, it really comes down to uh, people who are willing to embrace uh, unique and new things. They want to challenge uh, their daily experiences. Like I said, I think the worst thing we could ever fall into is knowing what, what's on aisle nine and knowing what uh, plaza is going to hold what store. And that seems to be where we're headed. When you walk into the cabinet of curiosities, you have no idea, you know, as, as you experience yourself, you have no idea and you're, you're overwhelmed. Uh, we usually get a lot of feedback in, in, in two extremes. And I like extremes when it comes to this, you either love it or you hate it. <laughs> and even those who hate it, they kind of come around after a while, they'll come in and they'll kind of, they might hug themselves, you know, their arms come in tight, their arms come up, the elbows are tight to the sides, their eyes are a little wider than normal, because what's going to jump out from the left or right of me. But, you know, as you ease into it, you, you let that sensation kind of take over and you kind of embrace it you really you really experience the shop is an experience and that's what yeah, we yeah. well what are walk me through now i mean it, just for a few seconds here walk me through some of the things that you acknowledge would be of the odder variety that you have right now if, if someone was coming in what would be the things that would really catch their eye because they really fall into the weird right now it's a hard question for me but i'll give it a shot you get I don't want to say I get jaded, but my, my sense of reality becomes a little different than common sense of reality because I'm immersed in it all the time. But I mean, you can walk into the shop and like you mentioned, I think earlier on the intro, there's a Naga head hunting basket, which has two monkey skulls on it. Uh, and literally it was a tribal basket used to collect heads. Uh, we've got a woolly mammoth leg bone, an actual full leg bone that's from a woolly mammoth. We have uh, human skeletons. We have human skulls. Uh, we've had mummy, uh, mummy parts. I mean, how, how weird does that sound? Even to me saying it, we've had mummy parts. So <laughs> it was quite common to, you know, there was the tombs and there was the full mummy wraps, but they also did dismember them and put them into pots. So we had a Coptic priest mummy hand at one point. Um, I've had dominoes that were made from, uh, the skull of, uh, a, a gentleman farmer who turned out not to be such a gentleman when he, uh, pulled together a lynch mob and tried to uh, accuse a woman of being a, a witch and actually beat her husband to death. She survived, uh, but he was executed. And somehow, as legend or lore goes, myth, fact, mystery, however you want to look at it, this set of dominoes was made from his skull. So uh, we've had taxidermy monkeys from the Niagara Falls Museum. We've had just an incredible array of material. I mean, I can still sit down and, and get shocked. Like on any given day, I can get packages come in from around the world, Victorian dog collars, mummified piglet, uh, fetuses, um, skulls, uh, just, just some really, really incredible material. It's a museum that if you're willing to, you can invest and you can own it. If you, okay. So if someone walked in your door is there a limit? Is there something that would catch you to the point where you would say, yeah, you know what? 
even for me, that's too far. I can't buy that or take that on. Is there a, a line that would be too far for even you? Well, there is a line, of course. I mean, everybody who has a has a sense of morals or a moral code that they, they live by. I mean, we do have to go by that. I go by that myself. Um, I make sure that everything that comes into the shop, I am comfortable and confident in the source, uh, whether I got it from a, whether I picked it from a museum deaccession, from a uh, hospital uh, deaccession, from teaching facilities, from lifetime collectors. I make sure I understand where it came from, who I'm getting it from, and why it was, why it was created in the first place. Um, I would say there's, there's nothing in the shop that I'm uncomfortable with. And, and I mean that what you're talking about specifically, because I think the thing that would catch most people off guard because they don't really know what the laws are or legalities are any kind of human parts. I think people might be surprised that, that, that you're allowed to do that, but you do have to make sure that they aren't dug up from someone's grave or stolen or something. I mean, there, there has to be some, as you say, comfort that this comes from a proper place. Well, exactly. I mean, and that's probably the, the, that's the area that we are the most critical of. Uh, and again, it's, it's analyzing, understanding, and knowing the source is all you can do. If you're looking at pieces that originated back from the 18th century, the 19th century, it's really hard to get hardcore, committed, firm documentation and proof. I mean, it's near, near to impossible. It's next to, next to impossible. However, that's when you turn solely to the source. If it's coming from a museum, how was it acquired? What museum? Is it a reputable museum? Um, it, you know, was it a, uh, a teaching facility? I mean, human skulls and full skeletons and half skeletons, they were boxed up and sold in the late 1800s and through the early 1900s. Absolutely commonplace for osteopaths. And it was a teaching aid. Uh, dentists, very common for dentists, um, a little more back in the day, it's, it's changed now with the with the advent of resin models now. But very common for a dentist to have an actual human skull with with breakaways to show the dentals, uh, uh, the dental aspects, um, the teeth, the de- development of the teeth. Same with doctors. I mean, you see this more in television shows now. But back in the day, you could easily go into your doctor's office, sit in the waiting room. There'd be a skeleton hanging in the corner. Uh, they were teaching aids. So at that time, they were collected uh, legally, they were collected uh, properly, um, and they became, you know, for lack of a better term, they became objects. Some of our biggest buyers now for human remains being skeletons or human bones are artists. Um, What better way to actually study that piece, study a human skull so that they can uh, draw it or illustrate it, uh, you know, that sort of thing, so... And, and again, most people have no idea because it's never dawned on them that, Hey, you know, I could own a human skull. It it is legal to do that. It is legal to own that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that will shock some people because it just, it's again, I mean, who, who, well, you, but I mean, other than you, who thinks, yeah, I can have a human skull sitting on my mantle. And that's, and that's the funny thing. What you have to do with something along those lines is you have to, it's almost like you have to just pause and take a breath and step back and say, okay, I need to think. Uh, I, I need to think it through rationally, right? Because it's easy to do a knee-jerk reaction and go, oh, my God, and go into, a, you know, maybe a little bit of, of a dramatic spin on it or a take. And, uh, you know, but if you sit back and think about it, 
these were medical aides. They were teaching aides. They were from hospitals. They were in museums. It was very common. It was very common. And it's not, and it's the big thing too, is it's about not being afraid of death. If you're not afraid of death, if you accept death, death is part of life. In life, we are in death. So there's no reason to fear it or to think that there's a mystery attached to it. Uh, that's our skeletal structure. Our soul, if you want to believe in the soul, is has departed. Our, our life is, is left. Our loved ones have the memories. These are objects now, and they're objects of art to a lot of people. Okay, but, so when I was talking to you at the store, one of the things, because you've got some of that stuff there, I said, this is the store, this is the last place on earth that you want to be in one night when the lights go out and you're, and you're stuck at that store. And you said, no, that's the time you want to be in the store. And I went, okay, you and I are thinking this very differently right now, Mark. Mark well, you know what? I stand by it. I really do. Because when was the last time and how often do you get that feeling anymore? And again, I will beat this to death. This is the idea that it, that drives the store. This is the foundation and the fundamentals of the store. Conformity is bad. <laughs> and I can just say that as a simple statement. We need to enrich our lives. We need to maintain a sense of wonder. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I hear a boom, I'm 54 years old. I hear a boom in the middle of the night or a little bang somewhere or something, a sound that I shouldn't understand. I immediately think ghost or monster. And I think that's fantastic. Of course, it only lasts for like a millisecond or a second or two, but that's what I still think. I don't think, oh, no, my water heater's shot or, oh, no, my furnace is broken. Some mundane analytical thought. No, I go monsters. And I love it. But you believe, though, that there are ghosts in that place or have been. There have absolutely been ghosts in that in in the shop, a hundred percent, and that's been backed up by by many people who have come through, uh, either either being uh, witness to it or or just simply having that overwhelming sense uh, and that understanding. Uh, I've had people walk in the shop, look at me, pause, turn around, come back the next day, and sage. <laughs> you know, and I love it. Because it's different, you know? It's it's just different. You want that feeling back on the back of your neck. You want that feeling on your arms when your hair raises up. You want those goose pimples to pop up. And you, you know? say you've heard them, though. You've heard a ghost, and you, like, you oh, truly I, believe that you've heard one. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know if this is if, you, if you'd look at this as a, as a plug or not, but it's just easier if I say my website, which is uh, cabinetofcuriosities.ca. There's a podcast. I spoke for a half an hour with a woman in BC, and I gave in-depth details on on the three best ghost stories. But yeah, the one I heard uh, this was attached in 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 my experience was attached to a tribal skull, uh, and it was just as loud as you could imagine it. And it was absolutely, a, a, for lack of a better term, it was a floating voice. Um, we had another one that was a figure that was typical that you would see and this is you know this is where you take it tongue in cheek it's up to you to believe but it was typical of what you see in the movies where you have this silhouette with a blinding light behind it and that was attached to the coptic mummy hand uh and then we had a doll and the doll was that was an incredible story i'd sold the doll in the morning and uh a woman that i know who considers herself an empath um and she came into the shop for the first time. She had never been to the shop. She had never seen the shop. No pictures of it, nothing. Didn't follow me on social media. And the doll had been at the doorway 
between two rooms and I'd sold it that morning. And she walked to that spot, stopped dead, looked at me and said, where's the doll? I didn't get it. The first went over my head. I kind of like, oh yeah, we, we place pretty things around the shop in case people need to focus on something other than, you know, some frightening stuff. So uh, I didn't get it. And we came back again the second time and she grabbed me, stopped me at the exact same spot. She was absolutely adamant. And she looked at me, said, where is the doll? And then it hit me. And that was the sensation. The hair on the back of my neck went up. The hair on my arms went up. And it was, oh, my God. The doll was right here. Like three hours ago, there was a doll right here. And she looked at me. She goes, it wasn't a happy doll. <laughs> it's always the creepy dolls, isn't it? It's always the creepy dolls well, that they have to bring out. and <laughs> They're the yeah. go-to, right? They are. Now, that story has a happy ending, though, because I did call the woman I sold the doll to, and she told me that she had not experienced anything with the doll, that nothing had happened out of the ordinary. She didn't get any feelings from it or anything at all. And uh, it could be that she doesn't have the the, the abilities, the, the empath quality, or what she went on to explain to me was, you know what? She goes, I think the doll is just happy now. She goes, she lives alone. She has a couple of cats. She had extra room. She actually gave what she considered this how she explained it to me. She gave the doll her own room. And she said the cats, the doll was in the sunshine and the cats would come up and curl up with the doll. They never messed with it. They never scratched at it. They would just curl up with the doll and the doll sat in the sunshine. She goes, I think it's a happy doll now. <laughs> it is um, It is a store. Let me tell you, it, for people yeah. who have not been there, it is uh, It is worth taking a look. Uh, I had never been there till this week. And I got to tell you, it's one of the... Uh, the places I don't know how more people in Hamilton don't know about this because it is weird, it is strange, and it is unusual. It is called the Cabinet of Curiosities and other otherwise needful things. It is on Hat Street in Dundas. You can't miss it because there's usually a taxidermied animal out front when it's open, so that'll welcome you in. Um, Mark, really appreciate you taking some time to talk about it today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I appreciate the time. I really do. I'm I'm looking forward to to welcoming as many people as we can come in. And and just a footnote, uh, the big news that we've got for the shop is that uh, we've decided that we're going to uh, move further into Hamilton. So come April, it looks like we'll be setting up on Ottawa Street uh, and we're going to double our square footage. So we are going to bring the museum to ottawa street it's going to oh, be the, the antique the staid and stoic antique dealers on ottawa street are going to love having <laughs> you with your skulls and skeletons as a neighbor oh i think so i think so it's going to be interesting we're going to shake it up a little bit when we get down there mark drack thanks for the time today really appreciate it i appreciate it scott thanks the scott radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 chml the Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.